0: Startle us, O oh God, with your truth. Open us to your love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So today is Commitment Sunday. The day that we hope you've been praying about your commitment to the church for the coming year in time and talent and treasure. We hope that you're planning to turn in a pledge card as we prepare to put together our budget for the coming year. The Stewardship Committee expects that I will say something about this this morning, and so do many others of you. And each year this results in lots of comments like, and this is exactly how it's inflected, well, Adam, do you have that stewardship sermon ready? I had one person come to me this week in this room, look at those new pew cushions and say to me, "Well, it looks like you've got a nice comfortable place place for people to lay down during the sermon this week." <clears throat> do these comments make me uncomfortable? Well, I take most of them with a grain of salt, but if I'm being entirely honest, yes, they do make me uncomfortable. I know that there's a lot of baggage out there in our culture about churches asking people for money. Additionally, I'm not an expert in money and finances. Most of you know more about that subject than I do. So I don't feel like this is what I do best. But I do feel a certain amount of conviction about talking about giving in church, for at least two reasons. First, Jesus talks about money, a lot, possibly more than he talks about any other subject. And he doesn't do it because he's fundraising, but because he knows that money is important. Money is a part of people's basic well-being and ability to exist and the way that people use their money is an expression of what they care about. So I don't talk about if I don't talk about money at all, I am neglecting a major part of the witness of scripture and I am failing all of you in my professional responsibilities. But I also feel personally convicted to talk to you about giving because there is nothing that I do with my own money that is more life-giving to me than giving it away. It never causes me buyer's remorse. I never feel like I didn't get a good deal or that I gave too much. And when I give money away, it always has the spiritual and psychological effect in my own life of reminding me that if I am able to give money to somebody else, I must have enough for my own needs. So I'm going to talk about money today, as well as our resources of time and talent, and I hope that you'll indulge me. I am going to talk about it mostly in reference to two ideas that are very important to spiritual health. Scarcity and abundance. Charlie, our five-year-old, when he is feeling especially sweet, or maybe when he's angling for a little extra dessert, likes to climb up into Anna's lap and say something that I've heard versions of from lots of little boys and girls. Mommy, he says, I spend all my love on you. our response is always the same that's very nice charlie thank you but remember love is special because the more love you give away the more you have you can never give all your love away young growing minds work differently than our own of course but it's amazing to consider from time to time that From the time we are very, very young, most of us are inclined to think about the world as a place of scarcity, where there is only so much to go around. Children do not need to be taught to worry about which toys belong to them. What we have to teach them is how to share. And even as adults, we are inclined to think of so many things in life as a zero-sum game. We need to take care of what is ours because there is only so much to go around. Back in the 18th century, economist Adam Smith, in his classic text, The Wealth of Nations, made an argument against the zero-sum game. Against the mercantilists who claimed that trade was a zero-sum game, Smith said, absolutely not. Each nation has its own set, he said, of natural resources and cultivated skills. And when each nation concentrates our economy around the things that we do best and trades for the things someone else can do more cheaply, there is an overall growth in wealth. Everyone, he said, wins at this positive sum game. Adam Smith had to prove this to people. He had to write it out because we are so inclined to think about the world in terms of scarcity. In the past, I've spoken about our ministries to the poor by citing a study about the dangers of scarcity. People who live in true scarcity are often forced into situations that multiply their suffering. Imagine that you are truly living paycheck to paycheck, making only enough money to pay the rent and to feed and clothe your children and to provide for basic needs, and then an unexpected expense comes along. The car breaks down. And then you have to decide if you're going to do without the car, which may cost you your job or if you're going to go ahead and pay for the car repair and instead go without eating or not pay the rent and risk getting evicted having to make these stressful choices the research shows leads to psychological and physical illness and leads people to make worse economic decisions than they would make if they were not so stressed. Scarcity works in a similar way for people who have lots of money. People who are convinced that they need to have something that their friends have go out and purchase houses and cars and other things that they cannot afford. They make irrational financial choices in order to keep up with the Joneses, and they wind up worse off than they were to begin with. This is where scarcity thinking comes to neighborhoods like ours. Scarcity is dangerous. It has a multiplying effect in our lives. And scarcity is a challenge because so much of the world that we live in constantly sends us the message that we do not have enough. We live in a world that we, where we not only hear that we are not wealthy enough, but that we do not have enough time, that we are not pretty enough, not safe enough, not accomplished enough, and we must do something about it. This is the spiritual problem with scarcity. For what I have been describing is not at all the way God thinks of us. To God, you are beautiful and accepted and perfectly sufficient. And that is hard to believe in the face of everything else that we hear. And that is why I am convinced that church has got to be a place where we reassure one another that we do have enough. Church has got to be a place of abundance. It is one of our unique roles. I'm convinced that the one thing abundance shares with scarcity is that it also has a multiplying effect. Believing that we do have enough and that God will provide what we really need, that kind of thinking leads to wise choices and good health and strong relationships. It has a multiplying effect in our community. Abundance is a positive sum game. The Bible talks about abundance and scarcity all the time. Biblical scholars will tell you that the most important story in the entire Old Testament is the exodus from Egypt and God's covenant with Israel. Everything before that leads up to that story, and everything else follows from it. Some of you will remember that the backdrop to the exodus story is the story about Joseph in Genesis. I preached about that story last summer. Let me remind you of a few things from the Joseph story. In that story, the pharaoh has a dream that even though he is the richest man in Egypt, he is not going to have enough to see himself through an upcoming famine. So he hoards the produce of the land and stores it away in barns, and when the famine comes, he sells the produce back to the people at inflated prices until they have nothing left to give and they must become his slaves. Meanwhile, watching the Israelite population grow in numbers, the pharaoh becomes fearful that they are going to rise up and take away what he has, and so in order to prevent that, he makes them his slaves as well, and he forbids them from having male children. The whole reason for the Exodus story, Moses and the burning bush, the plague of locusts, the night of the passover the whole story is a response to the pharaoh's unreasonable anxiety that he will not have enough when the people are finally freed from slavery and are on their way into the promised land what happens next only serves to reinforce the point god performs two miracles Water comes spilling out from a rock in the middle of the desert, and bread falls from heaven. Why? To be sure that now that they are free, the Israelites do not adopt a scarcity mentality of their own, but instead learn to trust that God will provide. The New Testament tells stories that work in a very similar way. You may remember one parable in which Jesus tells of a man who is just like Pharaoh. He he finds himself with a bigger harvest he needs at the end of the season, and so he tears down the large storage barns he already has, and he builds even bigger ones. And then he finds that he's going to lose his life that very night, and so Jesus asks, what was he saving it for? It's a story about that wise old adage that you can't take it with you and that it is dangerous to worry about not having enough. Interestingly, that parable, the one found in Luke chapter 12, is immediately followed by a lesson from Jesus, which many of you will recognize words that contrast scarcity with abundance. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will God clothe you? Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Apostle Paul thinks the same way. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. The words that our stewardship committee chose for this year's campaign, they were this morning's scripture lesson. The point is this, Paul writes, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as you have made up your mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you will always have enough of everything and may share abundantly in every good work. Paul didn't compel people to share out of their scarcity, talking to them of guilt-inducing sob stories and arm-twisting. He instead told them that God rejoices when people live abundantly and share out of their abundance. Abundant living is just better than scarcity living, Paul says. So make up your own mind about what you're going to do. I've been away from Knox Church for the past three Sundays and for two work weeks in between. During that time, the following things took place. Our youth were featured in an article in Hyde Park Living about their interfaith activities with Isaac Wise Temple and the Islamic Center of Cincinnati. Last week, 50 of you attended a first Friday family night with activities for parents and young children. For the past two Sundays, another 50 of you have attended our new adult formation class on neuroscience and faith, in addition to other regularly scheduled opportunities for adults to learn. Two weeks ago, our Growing Children's Choir sang in this worship service together with the Knox Choir, an incredible opportunity for young musicians. Yesterday, almost 200 people participated in Mission Possible, providing assistance to several of our mission partners, including 1,800 bags of food for childhood food solutions. A new class of Stephen ministers are being trained to care for people in our congregation who are struggling. Our youth participated in a walk for suicide prevention. Our men's group picked up garbage with a group of young boys who need mentoring. We collected Thanksgiving supplies for Meek. Our faith community nurse helped several Knox families with some difficult health care transitions. Children in our preschool visited local farms. They got to hold baby chicks and milk a goat. Last week in worship, we celebrated All Saints Sunday and remembered the legacies of members of our church family who have died in the past year. The choir sang the Lord's in Luke's Eterna as we prayed. Last week, a new family at Third Presbyterian Church who relocated from Wisconsin humbly expressed to friends in their new church that they had no beds for their children. So we bought them beds. These are the things that I know of That happened in this community in the last 15 days. I don't know how else to say it. This is a place of abundance. All of these things happened because people give generously and because they volunteer. It is a widespread effort. The bulk of our budget comes from annual pledges of under $5,000. Most of our volunteers engage in an act of service maybe once or twice a month. Only one statistic is troubling to me. Only about 42% of our members make a pledge. And that is troubling to me for, like Paul, Paul. We are not interested in guilt or hand-wringing. We simply want for as many of you as possible to walk through the doors of this place to look around at what's going on and to know that you are a part of making it happen. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. Thanks be to God. Amen.